This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. And yes, you haven't missed a show. This is the first Radiotherapy for 2015. And just like the weather yesterday, it's going to be a hot one. Now, many thanks to all the great shows that uh, covered the grid during the summer break. We owe you big time. Today on the panel, we are fortunate to have two psychiatrists, one infectious... Don't laugh at that. One infectious disease physician and 1.5 lawyers. 1.5, I hear you ask. <laughs> That's because our legal counsel... is pregnant. <laughs> Lex Judicata, whilst svelte in physique, is heavy in stature. For Lex, things are never black and white... That's why he's known in the, in the trade as 50 Grades O'Shea. Oh, that took me months to figure out. Lex really is the younger, elder statesman of the legal profession, having worked at the highest level in multiple fields. Health <laughs> is his current portfolio. And today, Lex is going to be speaking with us about changes to the legislation about power powers of attorney and wills. Is that correct, Lex? Yes. <laughs> Do you notice how it's like brothers-in-law, powers of attorney? Mm. See, I was good at English. Um, junior doctor. Junior. I like junior as a name because he's so young. He's a freshly minted psychiatrist and he's brimming with enthusiasm and talent. He really, really is. Junior was until this month the principal registrar. All bow, a principal registrar, one of Melbourne's largest psychiatry services. Now, that title of a principal registrar reflects the respect that his peers and seniors have of him. Junior! I keep thinking of the Sopranos and Uncle Junior. <laughs> Junior is keen to know uh, how we know what and who will make a good doctor. And we were just having heat discussion in the green room about this, and we've all got our very strong opinions. But Virginia has actually done some research into the area. He's not just opinionated. He's got some facts. And he'll be revealing his literature review this morning. I can't get that image of um, Arnold Schwarzenegger as the pregnant... Oh, Junior with the pregnant one. Yeah, no, yeah. I didn't have that one. Out um, of my head. Well, you, now you've put it in my head. Dr. Penny Sillen, and I spell your name, Penny, as P-E-N-E-E, P-E-N-N-E, like the pasta, is an old... That's Penne. Dr. Penne. (laughs) So I think it's actually not spelled that way. That's how Kira Knightley would say it. Dr. Penne. (laughs) Dr. Penne, Cillan, is an old friend of the show. And we're so pleased she's come up from her coastal practice to be with us. Um, When she texted me her topic the other day, I thought it was a bit of a a typical autocorrect error. But on closer reading, this is your topic, isn't it? It's MERS-CoV, middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus. Is that right? Correct. Now, I think you guys in infectious disease really need an acronym gener- generator <laughs> in your field. Because come on. I can think of a better acronym than this. But apparently um, it is a uh, new-ish recent... Recent emerging virus. Virus. Important to know about. That we do need to know about. And so we've got all this stuff, plus a whole lot of really, really interesting catch-up for the next hour of radiotherapy. Plus, I will look for some really, really good music because I forgot to select some this morning because I was in such a rush. It was the St Kilda Festival. I got back late last night from um, Sting and... um, Paul Simon, lie, lie, lie. Oh, I missed it. I reckon half the doctors in Melbourne were down there. Good morning, Lex, by the way. I was at the Stonington uh, Opera in the Park. It was magic. Oh, 
I've been Absolutely. to that jazz in the park. It's fantastic. Yeah, well, Opera in the Park, Mary Nicholson was comparing. We had, uh, oh, just fabulous uh, singers. What, you know. op- what operas? Well, like? excerpts. They were excerpts. Of course. But, uh, yeah. yeah, but we had, uh, um, yeah, Sally Ann Russell, one of great sopranos, now living in Melbourne, and um, oh, just, you know, just a great night, really. Did you do Cosi Fantuti? No, 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 Cosi. I love no, that Cosi Fantuti. That's my name, a pet that. Cosi Fantuti. Yeah, the, uh, it was a good night and a beautiful night in Melbourne, Low. It did look a bit tricky for a while there. But oh, tell me about it. Yeah. No precipitation. I, I brought my poncho. And what about you, Penny? Oh, good morning, Penny, by the way. No, Penny. good morning, and I'm really sad that I missed Paul Simon, but I'm wondering, did he do a lot of um, songs from the era of Garfunkel or more kind of recent stuff? Cecilia. You're breaking that. my uh-huh. heart. You're Yep, that one. Um, Bridge over trouble. He did all of it, and they sing, Sting, and um, and uh, Paul Simon sang each other's songs, and they harmonised together. It was fantastic. It was actually down your neck of the woods. It was. I should have been there. You should have been there, along with the other doctors in Melbourne. Junior, so good to have you back on the show. You, Thank you. I can see that you blush when I when I. Um, I talk of your accolades, but really, you. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to having someone young like you on the show because, unlike us three, you actually have facts to support your opinions. Whereas, I know we have facts, but not as facty. But I'm also not, not as, as old as you and Lex, so I'm feeling a little bit bad. And being I've got, a, I've got a few facts. I got a few facts. Okay, his, his facts are better. <laughs> Uh, now let's move straight into catch up. It's been um, it's been three two months since we've been on the show. Lots of happened has happened in the world of medicine. Pen A, tell us about this fantastic discovery or invention with three D printing. Oh look, and this is not. There was a um, story that came out of the University of Sydney yeah. very recently. Although this had been talked about before, so this is three D printers and the fact that you can use them to create things. And as you know, before there was some stories not that long ago about people actually making firearms from a three D printer which is obviously not desirable however what we have found is that 3d printers are now being used to create pieces of skull or what they call skull implants for people who've had head trauma and basically a lot of people who have head trauma need to have pieces of their skull replaced as part of the surgical management of their head trauma at the university of sydney they've used a 3d printer to create these skull implants and what they do is they use the scans from the injured patient to custom make a piece of implant that's going to fit into that place and it's completely sterile so there's no risk of infection and they've used this for people who've lost as much as 40% of their skull from major trauma so this is amazing and I suppose it opens the door and makes you wonder about the other things that might be Mm. able to be made from a printer rather than in the laboratory because previously creating a skull implant in the laboratory from places like the bone bank took weeks and weeks and perhaps even months what else do you reckon they could do with that 3d gen i mean you could make any bone couldn't you you wonder about whether or not you could create one of the big bones of the lower limb for example how does it how does how does a piece of bone come out of the printer good question how does a piece of firearm come out of the yeah. printer? I don't, my brain doesn't stretch that far, mm. Lex, so I can't really explain it. I don't know if anyone else understands Maybe that. Maybe it gives you, a, a, give you a, a, model, a model, like a mould, that you can then cut a piece of bone to that size and shape. But it's not made out of bone. No. So, it, But it goes in your head. But it goes not in your head. On your skull. It goes on your skull. That's right. That's mm. right. 
So, look, I suppose this does... It'll be interesting to watch this space and see what else can be Mm. created. And also, there's not, right now, any data for how this works longer term Mm. and whether or not it can remain in place in the longer term or whether or not, for example, in this situation with the the skull, whether or not this is a temporary fix and not meant to be permanent. What I love about this is we are now really coming into an era where we're having idiosyncratic medicine, that is medicine directed, specific, personalised for that person. Like, you know, with gene, you know, we can pick perhaps which medication or antibiotic might be best for your particular genotype, yes. And, you know, now we can make stuff specifically for you. I wonder in prosthesis if there's a, a similar thing going on with 3D printing. So, you know, you can make it uh, the prosthesis especially for that for, for that particular patient. I mean, But I think that becomes a whole lot more complicated when you're talking about prostheses mm. because of the neurological side that you need to have nerve and motor function. Yeah. Whereas to create mm. a piece of bone that doesn't need to have any function in terms of movement, doesn't need to have sensation, so that's kind of an easier... I, yeah. I suppose right now, technologically, that's achievable. Still, it's the first, first steps. Absolutely. Now, you also had some other catch-up as well. Well, Sorry, something, that really, no, something that really um, caught my eye was a study um, in Norway looking at screen time for teenagers. <laughs> and screen time, they didn't actually define this as television. So, by the way, television is not a screen, people. If you're worried about how much TV... It's te- now called a panel. <laughs> Thanks, Junior. <laughs> That. Is that oh, true? How large is your panel? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so if you're in terms of screen time, so you're talking about computers, iPads, phones, iPods, so other um, devices, um, they were looking at how much screen time teenagers used and whether or not that affected their sleep, and they've now got very strong hang on, hang on, evidence. Hang on, hang on. Before you say. Who's they? So this is a group of researchers in Norway. I believe that a lot of them were psychiatrists. Okay. Instantly That, that makes you feel better. That's Instantly you're sort of like, that's true, validated, honest, right? True, authentic. Because yeah. no, they could be working for the screen company or they could be working for a... I don't think they were working for the screen company. You never know. Wait for the results. (laughs) Um, So they have found strong evidence that if you had more than four hours a day on a device, that you were three and a half times more likely to sleep less than five hours a night. That didn't mean... Less than five hours? Yeah. So what that means is it didn't mean that your screen time was overnight. That would seem kind of a little bit daft to say you slept less overnight because you were on your device more often. That's not what they meant. They said that what it actually... More screen time during the day, especially in the hours before bedtime, makes it very difficult to get to sleep. And they were finding that teenagers who use their devices just before bedtime, it was taking them well over an hour to fall asleep. And it affected their quality and duration of sleep over the night so that that what it, what they've concluded is that from their study screen time of less than four hours is desirable and screen time before bed is undesirable i think a lot of people have looked at screen time before bed and said it's not desirable because the well because you're in not, bed well it depends what you're using this very undesirable in bed but, well yeah in fact yeah, there, there's, we actually talked about this I think mm. a while ago but I think the light coming at your eyes signals mm. that it's daylight and you know who wants your brain thinks oh, so it's too stimulating isn't it at it's that time of night yeah. yeah and also if you're playing an interactive kind of game where you have to think and you know your adrenaline's up and whatever that's also going to sort of make you quite uh, adrenalised and less likely to fall asleep I think I think that's true what about I've had this what about like e-books when you're reading an e-book 
at night in bed, is that going to go into your eyes? No, different to ordinary book, surely. It's the same activity. Yeah. It's just brightly lit or you can dull it down. I don't oh, see how that could be a... You can dim it down. I'm hoping yeah. not because I do love my Kindle. I don't think that study you're talking about, Penny, would be a Kindle-type reading. They weren't talking about this Kindle. like gaming or yeah. Active, active... Yeah, but it's also... it's For a lot of teenagers, it's responding to things that other people are posting. Oh, so somebody posts media. a photo and yeah. they say, love it. Yeah. And all of the different comments right. that they have, hashtag this, that, and yeah, the other. Yeah, it's decision-making. It's all about decision-making and neural activity. Right. And being, yeah, quite similar. That's a very interesting. Well, Junior, this is more kind of your generation, you know, the interweb and everything about it. I mean, is it just a cultural shift, you reckon, where people are just using screens all the time and we as the kind of oldies are, th- are sort of pushing our hand up against a, a, a tide. Yeah, there's been media commentary about this exact topic for um, qu- quite a lot of coverage, actually, for the last um, couple of months that I have seen. Um, you know, there used to be uh, safety sort of parenting guidelines yeah. almost, um, advising that children mustn't have more than two hours of screen time, including television or exposure to panels. <laughs> um, you know, um, mm. leading up to the um, 2010s Mm. but now they're finding that that's just untenable Mm. it is impossible to limit um, children to have uh, screen time um, less than two hours nowadays it's used as a placating device it's used as an educational device sometimes Um, and and children are actually from pre-teenage years they're probably getting you know up towards six to eight hours of screen time before you even know it in 24 hours and it's it's a it's a point of contention. And I think the other thing that parents used to do was use parental controls on what their children could and could not look at on the internet. Yeah, yeah. But what I found with that, having a, a friend of mine who did put that on her computer, there's certain target words that if it's in your search, if you put it into your Google search engine, it wouldn't let you proceed. Mm. So I remember looking up maternity bras. That's absolutely you can't go if you put in bra. Oh really? No, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so there's some downsides of these, you know, parental controls, and I think I, I don't know how many people use them now, but there are probably other ways of controlling use. It's like everything. It's neither nor all good or all bad screens. Mm. I mean, you know, it depends exactly what are you using it for. And certainly, my kids, so much of their education's online. Mm. I mean, they've got to use a computer. Should, should they be watching or doing screen time on their own in their own room, or should they do it in a in a in a more communal room in the house if you're worried about content? Well, I, we we have our kids, and our kids are you know uh, twelve and 11, almost eleven. They use a laptop in the kitchen as yeah. we're walking around. We yeah. trust them, but we'd like to know what they're doing. We don't want awesome to become prey to somebody yeah. else online. So, yeah, we walk around them as, mm. they're, as they're doing stuff. Oh, yeah, good. What, what about you, Ben? Well, we're just instituting that very rule now because we found that they um, go off to areas on their own and we don't really know what they're up yeah. to, so we're trying to pull it back to the main living area so that we know what they're doing. Did they have computers in your day? Um, with uh, we had... Uh, yeah, <laughs> Did well, you have TV? <laughs> we, uh, thanks very much. We had TV, yeah. We, we had to sit in the lounge room and pedal to keep the picture flickering. Apart <laughs> <laughs> from that, it was fine. And, and you know, we... And actually, when I my former life uh, as a teacher, we 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 pioneered computers in our uh, in our yeah. era, yeah. but it was paper tape computing, and then it became cards with chads. Do you remember those? Oh, yeah. or you might yeah, not yeah, remember those. those You'd have to punch yeah. them out with a paper clip, oh, and that yeah. was how you programmed. You, each card was a different instruction, but and I, I think the sort of capacity of the computer then was probably about what you've got in your wristwatch now. Yeah. A, a kilobyte, I think it was. Mm. 
Fascinating stuff, all this. You know, I, I wonder where our kids are going to be with their kids in terms of screens, you know, and whether that big screen in the living room will still... The, the TV... I'm doing air quotes now because it's radio. <laughs> <laughs> How that will be used because so much is on demand now. You know, the old idea of waiting for something just mm. doesn't exist anymore. You just get it when you want it nowadays. Well, and when you need a TV, you'll just watch TV on your screen, won't you? You won't have a separate device for no. watching TV. Why would you need it? Why do you need it now? See, I would have thought maybe in 50, 80 years' time, children will be born with panels implanted in their retinas. Mm. What a wonderful idea. And it's wirelessly controlled, so from the age of one... Do you mean we'll evolve to this so they'll have panels or we'll actually implant them? Or you put them in, like, contact lenses. No, it's like with dogs. You have to get the microchip. Yeah. Yeah. Three. Triple. Is a power of attorney, and why is it called attorney? Because in Australia we don't have attorneys; we have mm. lawyers and solicitors. That's a, it is a strange phrase because it's, it comes, I think, from uh, English law. The fact of an attorney is a person who acts for another person, and I guess the Americans pick that up and use it to define a lawyer, uh, being someone who acts for another person. But uh, an attorney is basically a substitute decision maker effectively we'll make a decision for somebody else now victoria has a very confusing system of attorneys and i won't uh, go through it because it takes too long but they're basically four kinds and um and two of them one deals with medicine and that is giving medical consent and refusing treatment park that because that's there's no change to that nothing's happening with that law parked. that's parked um and there are t- three others two deal with money having someone else deal with your money financial affairs and the fourth one deals with lifestyle where you live who visits uh, uh, do you go to a nursing home or not um you know does auntie mary allowed to visit you when you know she gives you the irrits uh you know the attorney will make those sorts of decisions on your behalf when you right. lose capacity so, so that's on, a sort of on. basic there's, structure there's two for money two for money one for guardianship and one for medical decision making right okay gotcha. so the one for guardianship and the two for money are being combined together and from 1 september there'll be a new powers of attorney act that deal with basically financial and personal matters so one you only need one document to cover both financial money and gut and lifestyle and that's from 1 september but the old um, powers that you might have already signed up for already will still work so you don't need to make new ones so this kind of makes sense so in the old days or up until september you could have four different people yeah, Correct. For each one of those yep, financial this, financial that. And you could have more than one. For money, you could appoint multiple attorneys. You can have one to do your, one responsible for your bank account, one responsible for your, now, you know, your it, rent. It does seem rather complicated, and I wonder yeah. how many people appointed a different attorney for each one. I reckon mm. very few. Yeah, you'd need to hire a town hall and get the attorneys together <laughs> and have a bit of a briefing <laughs> session. Anyway, so what's happened is from 1 September there will be this new act and there'll be what are called um, enduring powers of attorney for financial and personal matters now the there's two things about that which i'll briefly touch on because i don't really want to talk about that i want to talk about supportive attorneys but the under the new act unlike the present legislation um vcat will hold liable an attorney who who loses your money so if if they're sloppy in the way they behave 
and let's say they put all their money on the, the fourth, number four in the fourth race at Caulfield, um, they will be held accountable for that so that you can get an order making the attorney liable to the person who appointed them if the attorney loses their money. In other words, mishandles their money and negligently deals with their money. Lex, I'm just wondering, is that um, occur- is this change occurring on the back of um, uh, recent reported incidents where uh, financial administrators appointed by VCAT have not acted in the person's best interest? Is well, that what's brought about the change? It, pre- it predates that, but that's an interesting example that we had recently of state trustees, an article in the paper about state trustees and a represented person who the money was put into some investment scheme that's gone bust. Now, the question is, were they negligent in doing that? Possibly they weren't. I mean, perhaps they got advice, but... Um, Certainly, uh, attorneys will be much more accountable after 1 September than they are now. And the second big change is that um, they can be referred for prosecution if they commit fraud. So, uh, for example, I'm aware of... That's uh, fair enough, don't you think? Uh, yeah, fraud, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and but previously it was up to the police where they would charge someone. Whereas now there'll be a much clearer route between uh, fraudulent behaviour by an attorney and the criminal courts. So I know, I just let me get this right. So let's say I'm your power of attorney, Lex Financial, and <laughs> I decide to use all your money to go to a trip to Barcelona. Yep. Um, you, you'll have to compensate me for the losses I suffered as a result of you going to Barcelona. And am I being... And it, but it, fraudulent would mean that I say I'm actually paying for your new house, but I go to Barcelona. That would be... Uh, yeah, well, it's almost fraudulent to go to Barcelona. Um, that wouldn't really be mishandling it. It might be that um, you've invested in a dodgy scheme that no one would... Inv- no prudent trustee, for example, would invest in. Right. Uh, or you might, you might use your relatives, uh, or you might... You know, you might just divert the money away. So, what would fraud be? If you could fraud would be putting it in your pocket, basically yeah. stealing it. So, okay, stealing it. Okay. And we've, there's plenty of examples. See how of naive things. I am. And in Victoria, there's no requirement that you have a police check to be an attorney. I could appoint you really? uh, as my attorney, for example. Um, and uh, you know, <coughs> I, I wouldn't know that you were, you know, you're doctor malpractice. I, I would just think, you know, you're a good chap. Yeah. But as a fraud, I know you've got a string of convictions, and it wouldn't matter. It doesn't disentitle you to being an attorney, uh, and that's a bit of a weakness in the whole system. There's no, no yeah. checking. However, under the new legislation, if you have convictions for financial impropriety, you, you have to disclose it to the donor, and it has to be in writing in the appointment. So the donor has to know that you've got prior convictions for dishonesty. So that's quite interesting. That's, again, not in the current law. This all seems good stuff. It is. It is good stuff. Now, supportive attorneys is what I really want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, we've never had this before, and this is an a case where a person has capacity. Normally, um, powers of attorney operate when you lose capacity, although financial ones can operate in parallel while you've got capacity. But the medical one, for example, only works when you lose capacity. You make the appointment beforehand, and then when you lose capacity, the attorney steps in. And capacity means you can't make a decision. That's right. You lose the ability to make a decision. So with supportive attorneys, um, the presumption is that you can make a decision, but you need help. You need support in getting that, getting to the point where you can make your decision. So the supportive attorney won't be the, the decision maker. He or she will help the, de, the the person who appoints them to get to, to get to the point where they can decide. For example, someone might be in a nursing home who's got quite 
good capacity for in terms of you know but but they need help for example with advice on their share portfolio or their superannuation fund and they really can't go to a financial advisor and they can't go and talk to the bank so they appoint a supportive attorney who can go to the bank and the bank will release the information there's no uh, privacy problems uh, they can fine. they can talk to the financial advisor about the person's personal affairs without any breach of privacy and then go to the person and say look I've been around talk to everyone this is what I think you should do and then the person makes the decision so you so in essence you're using this person as your proxy Yep. in these sort of financial and other personal out. matters. Yep. But they don't actually have to be... When you're using the word attorney, you're not actually saying that they're a legal person, or you are. Uh, they're appointed under the under the legislation, which is the Powers of Attorney Act 2014. They'll be appointed as a supportive attorney. The appointment will lapse as soon as the donor loses capacity. So if the, if the person appointing them becomes incompetent, say unconscious or suffers dementia and can't mm. make her own, his or her own decisions, the supportive attorney will cease to function. So the supportive attorney can only work while you have capacity. And the supportive attorney's job is simply to... You give that person authority to access your personal information to help you make a decision. So is this a solution which is fixing a problem? Was there a problem before this? A big problem because um, the defect in the law at the moment is in most cases, although not in financial cases, but in healthcare, an attorney can't act until the person loses capacity. So this legislation will allow someone, for example, to help with your healthcare decision-making, help you understand what the pros and cons are of the decision. Okay, let's just say I'm your supportive attorney, Mm. um, and can I sign checks for you? Uh, No, well, no, you can help. You can say to me, it's okay if you sign this check, because I've got full capacity. I've got capacity to sign checks. I just don't know whether I should sign it or not. Apart from the privacy issue, and that's a Mm. really, really important issue, Mm. why does this need to be codified? I mean... Mm. Well, for example, I mightn't be able to speak. And I might, I might be, able, I might have lost the capacity. For example, in a motor neuron case, sure, yeah. I might, I mightn't be able to speak. But I, I want to be able to, to, to tell my uh, advisors what my position is. Now, the attorney will know what your, what your position is. The attorney will be able to speak for you. Will be able to go and talk to people who you can't talk to anymore, and disclose your personal information, and receive information back, and pass it on to you. And then you can make a much more informed decision so than you would otherwise attorney, be able to do. This attorney would usually be a family member it could be anybody anybody you trust anybody you trust but, but as soon as you lose capacity that ceases to function <coughs> that's so, right. so you need a real enacted. attorney then right you, exactly. you need a you need a a proper enduring financial attorney or you and you need an enduring medical but while you the, the defect in the law at the moment is that the people who have capacity but can't make decisions have got no one who can really uh if you like, break down the privacy barrier to give them help. I think the privacy one's a big one because you mm. can imagine if you're, say, a, a, um, a, the daughter of a, of a mother who still has capacity but, as you say, in a nursing home and really can't get out much, you know, the bank wouldn't ordinarily release details to that daughter, I would imagine, or, or health information from a hospital, I imagine. Mm. Um, so that that's a really important point. So I guess big institutions are going to have to come on board with this and, 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 and learn up 
uh, that they can actually release information to this. this well, if you want, if you ask a patient for medical consent, for example, mm. the patient might, uh, might say, "Well, um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure what to do about this. I don't know anything about these new treatments. You know, I'm, I'm let's, you don't have to be old, but let's suppose you know, you've got an 85 year old patient who really doesn't know whether they should be on these broad based antibiotics um, or a particular drug that has side effects. They don't know what the side effects are. Whereas the supportive attorney could find out, could go away and talk to the medical team, but you could see, read up. From search the internet. How's it different from a current family member, though? I mean, that particular case, it's not. Well, uh, it it depends on. Um, well, the the person doing the appointing appoints somebody who they believe, come hell or high water, will represent their interests and give oh, them accurate advice. Right. There's no hidden agendas here. Oh, so That's why the next door neighbour sometimes is better than yeah, perhaps a close family yes, relative. So, so I'm wondering, does that somehow um, is that? somehow helpful in the situation where you've got a patient who either has no next of kin mm. who can assist them yep. they may have capacity but they really don't have anybody mm. else who can assist them or the situation where people do have next of kin mm. but the next of kin are all arguing mm. about what exactly. the decision should be is that, is that a solution yeah absolutely and in both cases it would work it's particularly good when you've got no family at all and you and you mm. and you're worried about how to do it and you're all on your own effectively yeah. and you you need support but you know, you, there's no one you can talk to, but of course, with family, it can be very complex. Well, this is an interesting solution, I think, uh, Penny. That you know, not infrequent. There's broigus. There's um, there's uh, consternation amongst family during a highly stressful period, and to say, and it's very hard for the person, for the patient, to say, well, you know, come on, guys, come together, because everyone's so stressed. If you say, okay, Penny. You're my supportive attorney. Yeah. That actually sort of it kind of cuts through a lot of the tension. I think it does, but I think what the the Achilles heel of this whole thing is going yeah. to be the delay um, yeah. that the, the delay um, that it takes in order for you to actually appoint yep. somebody. Because yeah. what we find, especially in the sort of acute hospital setting, is that you could be waiting weeks for somebody to be appointed yeah. as either a guardian or something else. Yeah. So you, you wonder if you it need can to cut through that. You need to do it early on. Yeah. Leo, Leo, you must see it. With the new mental health act, people can have advocates. Absolutely. Um, I think for uh, psychiatric patients, things are a little bit different, though, because the mental health act sort of enables the uh, <coughs> clinician to act on a proxy basis. But um, you know, in the aged care setting, I think um, it's a it's a much more different reenactment. But how are you guys adjusting to the new act? I mean, how do how does how do psychiatrists now take into account the fact that someone could have an, an advocate, and you don't just talk to the patient; you've got to talk to somebody else as well. Mm-hmm. So the new act, um, the new Mental Health Act for the State of Victoria in two thousand and uh, fourteen, um, brought in several new um, uh, uh, roles um, that uh, patients can have access to while they're a compulsory patient. So you have a nominated person, um, you have um, uh, you can make an advance statement, and, and these sort of protective measures to protect the consumer's rights. It, the, the new Act has been in for about eight months now. I think gradually people are starting to... Um, Take up some of these options. Mm. So far, we haven't seen too much of it being taken. Mm. So it's up not that different. It's very similar to the concept of the supportive attorney, but in a broader medical context and in a financial context as well. Do you know, um, Lex? In my advancing years, these kind of education sessions I have with you are proving to be invaluable. Troubles are long gone by then. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lex. Always good to uh, to have you back on the show when you're not uh, in Europe or. Glenara <laughs> Jazz Festival, Opera, Opera Festival. Thanks that's so much. That's all right. Dr. Malpractice and I will be in Barcelona. That's right. Yeah. That's where, where we're going to be. <laughs>
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Penny. Well, MERS CoV, you tried to rename it as MERV S or something before, but it's MERS CoV. MERS CoV, that's what I said, MERS CoV. Okay, good, good. Okay, perhaps... Yeah. That's right. So, um, <laughs> that's right. So, um, I, I thought good. It's a good opportunity just to just talk about another new virus. And one of the interesting things in my field is how many new infections arise every few years. Keep your eyes open because there's new stuff all the time, and especially in the world of viruses. So, and then there's always ones that might go away and be dormant for a while. You'll hear nothing for a few years, and then they'll become active again so it's always interesting in the field of virology so this is another example of that is that your field are you a virologist no i'm not okay but but within the field of infectious diseases virology would be one sort of subspecialty within that gotcha so this infection mers cov and it was named that because it stands for middle east Syn- middle east respiratory syndrome coronavirus and i suppose coronavirus to a lot of people doesn't mean anything but um can corona- i guess, can I guess yes. coronavirus corona means it's not so it's not the beer crown <laughs> crown <laughs> Crown, yeah. Heavy is the head. Yeah, uh, crown. It's crown. So it looks like a crown, like a head. I think virologically it does, but what I was going to say was there are other well-known coronaviruses. So perhaps more than a decade ago, the outbreak of SARS. (gasps) Junior might be too young to remember that, but it was a very... Big outbreak of um, so, respiratory yeah. disease that killed many people. So that was another type of coronavirus. coronavirus. Right. So this um, Middle East respiratory um, coronavirus was detected first in 2012. There was a man in Saudi Arabia that developed pneumonia, didn't test positive for anything else, and they found this new virus. And subsequently, there were many more cases, and they all were linked to having been in Saudi Arabia. So they were either people living in Saudi Arabia or people who had travelled there and then gone back to other people, to, sorry, to other places in the Arabian Peninsula. And subsequently, by doing sort of this linking investigation to try and figure out who got it from who, they found out that really the epicentre at that time was Saudi Arabia and it spread out to other parts of the Arabian Peninsula. And then they named it. Okay, And what they found was where did it arise from? And once again, like many other um, new viruses or novel viruses, bats are implicated um, heavily in, um, in, really? yes, in the origin of these viruses. Bats. And Yeah, bats. Your friendly old bats. So there are bats in Saudi Arabia? There are. Mm. Mm. But how can, why, why bats and viruses? So um, what, what has been found previously is that bats carry a lot of different viruses in um, their body fluids, in the urine, for example, or in their faeces. And there have been numerous outbreaks that have been linked to bats. So people might remember Nipah virus that caused a huge outbreak of disease in the 90s in Malaysia, and they culled hundreds of thousands of pigs because they thought pigs were actually oh, responsible. Yes. It was actually bats were the primary um, 
the primary vector. Um, and vector yeah, and, and probably pigs were what we call an intermediate host, but they weren't actually the primary host. Um, they've subsequently, you might remember, um, hendrovirus. Mm. So you've heard of hendrovirus killing horse, vets and yep, horse horses thing, yeah. and horse trainers in Queensland. Once again, bats implicated in that. They've found that that actual virus has been found in bats. And the way that it was spread to horses is that the bats roost in trees above where the horses oh. are. So bats, once again, implicated. It's sort of been seen in many infections and it's now seen in MERS-CoV. And in this case, the intermediate host... Um, because there's not a great deal of contact between bats and humans that's direct. Yeah. So the um, intermediate host in the Arabian Peninsula, if you want to guess what animal it might be... Camel. Yes, well done, Lex. Ah, so be, camels... And there's actually been some good testing, especially of some people, especially, you know, people who had a herd of camels who became sick. So they've done an investigation, found the same virus in the camel, in the camel's um, urine, feces, respiratory secretions, etc. So how do they get it from the camel? Through Just because they're in contact so, with the body fluids yeah, of the camel? Yes, so, so you could either get it from a sick camel, just the way mm. that people got hendrovirus from sick horses. They sneeze, they've got secretions. But the other thing is that people who love camels, and I saw this when I was in Jordan... They drink camel milk, mm. and that could be infected. And apparently they also drink camel urine. Mm. I wasn't aware of that. Mm. But the other thing is that when the camels die or when they decide to, you know, kill the camels, they eat all of the meat. Mm. And if the meat's mm. not well cooked, that could be infected mm. as well. So when you say an intermediate, an intermediary, yep. that's something that hosts the virus but doesn't necessarily get sick. Is that right? Um, it could get sick, but what it means is that it's an intermediary between the primary bat. one, between the bat and the and human. The human. Yeah, so that's like right. a mosquito with malaria, is it? Yeah, that's right. Well, the mosquito carries the malaria in its yeah to the body, to the human. But, mm. Yeah, so they have. So that's the sort of link. They've now, since two thousand and twelve, been nearly a thousand cases. It's been predominantly in the Arabian Peninsula, with the epicenter being Saudi Arabia, but they've. Subsequently, due to international travel, spilt over into Europe, Asia, and subsequently some cases in the US, all from travel. So if I get MERS-CoV, can I give it to you or do I have yes. to get a camel? So human-to-human transmission has now been fairly well documented where there's no other way that people could have gotten it except for human-to-human transmission. Right. And the most common has been in hospitals where there's been a spillover of secondary cases in healthcare workers and people even family members caring for patients. So human-to-human transmission is definitely and possible. And what happens when you get this virus? I mean, what, yeah, what are the symptoms? So it causes a really severe pneumonia. It can cause kidney failure <clears> as well, and those are the two major things. And the, the death rate is actually pretty high. So as opposed to a simple pneumonia, mm. the death rate from MERS-CoV so far has been 37% of those that are laboratory-confirmed cases. That's high. Yes, it is, except that it's probably spuriously high because because there's probably some mild cases okay. that never get tested. Okay. And so this inflates the mortality rate. It's probably lower than that. And is there a treatment for it? There is no treatment for it. So the treatment is prevention. So right now there's no... So travel- it's like Ebola. It's no different to Ebola. There's no well, treatment it is for different that. To well, Ebola, the diagnostic but- mortality no, tests are almost comparable. Yeah. 37%. But it's not as infectious as what you're saying. Uh it prob- it doesn't have the same epidemic potential as Ebola does right now. Yeah. Now, that possibly could change. Um, but what they're saying about... There's no travel advisory on telling people not to go to, for example, sure. the Arabian Peninsula. Sure. And because they've looked at this at the Hajj for the last two 
Hajas. I don't know if that's yeah. plural. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can say that. But when they've looked the last two years, there haven't actually been outbreaks at the Hajj, which they thought there would be. So they've not put a travel advisory on it, but they've told people, especially if you've got diabetes, reduced immunity, underlying kidney or heart disease, or you're pregnant, for example or have cancer, perhaps you shouldn't be the people going over to the Arabian Peninsula because people with underlying diseases are much more likely to become unwell. But it's the same with the flu. People with underlying diseases, pregnancy, are much more likely to get sick. And the other thing is they're saying good hand hygiene is very important. Probably keep away from marketplaces, farms, and if you are near camels, you shouldn't drink raw camel milk, camel urine, or eat camel meat, especially if it hasn't been very well cooked. What about in Australia, where we've got a whole lot of uh, camels up in the north? They haven't yet had contact with the camels in the Arabian Peninsula. There are no Australian cases. So the main message... In Australia, what relevance does that have for us? So when I'm transiting in Dubai next month... um, Oh, where are you going, can I ask? Yes, I'm going to um, World Health Organisation meeting in Geneva and I have to transit in Dubai. Geneva. Geneva, yeah. So I have to transit in Dubai. So if there are sick people around, I might be one of those people with a mask on Mm -hmm. washing my hands furiously. Um, But the thing that it really means is in Australia, all of the immigration people are well aware when they look at where you've been travelling... So they want to know where you've been and then they do indicate to people that if you get the following symptoms within the next 14 days because the sort of why the outer range for the incubation period of MERS-CoV is about 14 days. So if you get sick within the next 14 days, you need to contact the health department or do this. And what they're wanting people to do is that if you first get sick with fever, for example, and a cough, don't be walking into a busy hospital emergency department Ah. and exposing yourself, infectively I mean, not personally, to to other people. Um, So that's the sort of advice given. But I I think one thing that should be said is that one of the cases that was detected in the US was in a person who had travelled to the Arabian Peninsula and when he flew back he took three different flights, exposed people on all Mm -hmm. of those flights, then went on a five hour bus trip before he got to to his destination you, and he was sick during that time Mm -hmm. with symptoms of cough Mm -hmm. and fever. You have to really... um, And and this is also relevant for Ebola, so we're looking at people who've come back from West Africa. You have to be very careful about how many people could potentially be exposed to you if you've got symptoms when Mm. you come back from travel. You say there's no cure for it. So if you go and tell a doctor you're not feeling well and they diagnose MERS-CoV, what will they do? Just tell you to rest? So if you've got a mild case... Attack the pneumonia, I guess. Right, well, if it seems like a mild case, it would be like a mild lung infection um you'd just stay at home but there's a you'd probably want to antibiotics would it no so you'd probably want to home quarantine people and that's one of the things that would be done for mild cases otherwise they'd be in isolation in a hospital if they're requiring active treatment but remember the treatment is not antibiotics it's supportive treatment of all the body functions that are not working Fascinating. Gee, I wouldn't have thought I would have heard of. Uh, I thought I would have heard of this virus somewhere in the medical literature. I mean, I tend to read a little bit, but um, has it been? Has it had much publication? In, in yeah, there's been a there's been a reasonable amount. Now there's people trialling vaccines and stuff like that. You might hear more, but there's been it's been reasonably quiescent over the last yeah. few months. So okay. let's watch this space. And it's a conference you're going to, the World Health Organization. Is that the sort of thing they'll be talking about? No. 
Right. But it should be, shouldn't it? <laughs> no, I'm going it to... Be. Uh, it should be uh, on their agenda. The World Health Organisation has many different meetings and this is a meeting to talk about some neglected tropical diseases. That's what I'm going hey, to Can I ask you a question? I mean, thank you very much for most COVID. Can I ask you another question? Uh, I've been reading the last month I've learnt... No, I've done more medical reading than I have in a long time because I've been on holidays. And two of the most fascinating things I read, here I'm pointing at you with my glasses... These two new antibiotics. Can you just tell us briefly in one minute about these like amazing discoveries of antibiotics that are going to cure MRSA and every bad bug? <laughs> So there's a few new antibiotics that have been talked about recently, one of them particularly for golden staph. Now, obviously, I I think the thing to mention is that from the time that something Mm. is discovered to the time that it's on the shelf, so to speak, is usually years because it has to go through so many levels of trials. Um, It does hold out some promise, though, because one of the things that has been probably the most um, negative thing in my field has been the um, increase in resistant bacteria, so bacteria that are not susceptible to the current antibiotics that we have. So this does hold promise for some of the resistant bacteria that cause a lot of infections, especially infections after surgery, Um, and we have now a much more limited armamentarium. So this kind of adds to the possible things that we can use to treat infections. That's a whole new type of antibiotic. Yeah, and and what we do need is whole new classes of drugs that haven't been used before. So this, definitely there's one antibiotic that holds good promise for things like the golden staph type of of bacteria. There's probably less in the pipeline for the other types of Mm. bacteria, what we call gram-negative bacteria that sit in your gut, Mm. for example. So what we do really need is something in that area. Um, to help with very resistant bacteria. And it will be young, keen researchers like Junior who come up with these new antibiotics, I imagine, in the future. I think people so, except like Junior's a psychiatrist, but yes. I forgot that one. <laughs> fact. But people from his year is what I'm talking about. Thank you so much, Dr Penny Sillan. In about 30 seconds, we'll be hearing from Junior about how to make a doctor. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Junior, I'm going to give you an open um, field here. You can hit the ball anywhere you want. Tell us about making a doctor, finding who's going to become a good doctor. How do we know? What do we do? Well, to start with, you have to um, turn the oven on to about 180 degrees. <laughs> if it's fan-forced, 160, you'll get away with um, I thought you were going to say you'd have a romantic dinner. But anyway, that's a different sort like of... A doctor, yeah. Order a cake from Menulog. Don't worry about <laughs> making it. Um, so, look, I, I wanted to have a talk about um, uh, the predictive factors in making... Um, a good doctor, a reasonable doctor. Mm. Um, this has been a point of interest of mine for um, probably the last few years. I've been sort of involved in uh, medical education and um, teaching um, for about um, the last 10 years or so. And um, ultimately, I'll give you guys the punchline first. But um, at this stage in 2015, we're not too sure how best to select um, students to um, study in medical school, which um, um, assessments we should rely on, um, and we're not too sure which assessments in medical school actually predict postgraduate performance as an intern or a resident doctor. Um, so let me just get this right. We, we are unaware 
in terms of strong evidence about the factors uh, or, or the things we should be looking for in students to do medicine that will predict if they will become good doctors? Is that right? That's right. That's and right. what in medical school, like if you do really, really well in psychiatry, does that mean you'll be an empathic doctor? Or if you do really, really well in surgery, does that mean you'll be a good technician? We don't really have good strong evidence about that that's right we don't know and i think this would probably shock the the layperson they would assume that we really know what makes mm-hmm. a good doctor <laughs> absolutely and well, what, is a good doc- what do you mean by good i mean uh, we just how heard, do you define uh, good? good you know you can be a good carpenter in terms of uh, being an orthopedic surgeon you can be really good with you know drilling and nailing and sawing and which is what orthopedic surgeons you know a lot of that you could have very fine motor control to be a heart surgeon. You could be empathetic to be a GP. What particular characteristic is a good doctor? Absolutely. Um, I think adopting the Canadian medical sort of model, using the CanMeds model, and I think around the world people tend to agree with the several spheres um, that they believe amalgamate a good doctor. So you have um, professional professionalism, um, leadership so professionalism obviously I'm talking to Lexia includes some legal know-how so you're not actually um, practicing beyond the law professionalism, um, leadership and team management qualities, you have to have the medical and the scientific know-how obviously Um, as well as um, procedural skills As as a layperson I would have thought the, the really basic thing you've got to know is anatomy and I just want, you know, I mean, if you go to the doctor and, they, and you've got a pain in your left arm, you'd hope the doctor would understand the anatomy of your left arm. They would have dissected an arm in training, for example. But I wonder with cuts now that doctors don't get access to anatomy. From very preliminary kind of informal, very qualitative um, sort of feedback I've heard, in this setting, in the Australia, in the Melbourne setting, um, if you ask the layperson what makes a good doctor... Nine out of ten, they'll want someone who communicates well. Mm. They want someone who actually tells you what's going on and what I can do about my ailment. And that was the sort of sixth sphere that I was going to touch on. So whilst you say there are lots of things that we need as a good doctor, like you need anatomy, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. There are lots of other things you need as well. Yeah, but it's not good communicating if you don't know how the left arm works. Yeah, no, no. no. Uh, We've got to be able to communicate, no, I agree. We, we agree with that. It's necessary, but that's not all. That's just no, the, the foundation. It's not sufficient. It's but, the same with law. You've got to know the law, but if you can't if you can't find a practical solution for your client, there's no point. You might as well just, you know, it's just like being an encyclopedia. Yeah. But I think yeah. the other really complex factor here is that you're trying to look for some of these traits in people who haven't actually developed their full capacity within mm, these traits. Absolutely. So at 18, I was less professional than I am now, and that was the time at which I got really? into medical school. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. By the, by the same token, I don't know that my... I, I think I was always a good talker but did i know how to communicate with patients i think you develop a lot of these things down the track and how do you pick somebody out who's going to develop those skills you know over the next decade that's what people have been looking at um and there's been um research in the australian setting that have primarily been done since about 2007 um and as recently as up till um last year so let's say a sort of a seven to eight year period they've been looking at that but um the study sort of methodologies have always left um people wanting so they would um stop too early for for example so um they might look at how you perform at your admission 
assessments, so your interview, your high school scores, um, as well as um, your aptitude test scores, um, and they will follow you um, up till you uh, are a first-year doctor or first-year intern, or the majority of studies actually stop at the end of the first or second year of medical school. So, Junior, I've just had a really a light bulb moment. Your PhD could actually be the seven-up of doctors. <gasps> Don't you think? It's going to be longitudinal. What a great study. What a great title. You follow them through. It's seven up for medicine. Do I need to define that? It sounds um, effervescent (laughs) and um, refreshing. And, and this is, um, this is uh, big stakes for, um, we, we've talked yeah. about how high um, these stakes are for the community. The community needs good doctors so yeah. we can diagnose and treat MERS-CoV, yeah. right? Um, help people with dementia and their supported attorney process. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also um, very high stakes for the individuals and their families. You know, we're just about to, we're around the corner from the um, 2015 university year. Um, university students are about to enter their new courses. This is high stakes for the individuals and their families. It's a highly stressful period um, doing VC, etc. Not to and mention that it's very expensive to train doctors, absolutely. and so you want to have the right people. Yeah. And I was going to say, it, it's it's actually big business. It is big business for um, the universities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you take a large Australian um, undergrad, postgrad medical school with 500 or so medical students each year, um, you know, they're, they're each entrance place in, in a, a medical school is about thirty to $50,000, depending on your nationality status. But you can't get a GP in anywhere in t- rural Tasmania. Why is that? Why, with all these graduates, I mean, how do you, how do you predict vocational uh, destination? <clears throat> Lex, great question. And, again, we were hotly debating this outside in the green room, but I think this might be outside the ambit <laughs> of what Dungeon might it's be part talking of, about. Well, it's part of the good doctor. I mean, how many of them really want to serve a community as, as a, a bit like lawyers who go, we, we, it's just di- it's difficult to get lawyers to work in regional areas until they go there well, and so they love it when they go there, but to get them to go there is very, very difficult. First of all, you, you have to know... They want to be specialists. They well, want to be specialists. Well, not all of them. You have to know what you want in a doctor and that's not just us doctors saying it. It's what the community says what a good doctor should be. So that's hard to, to, to kind of just actually understand what that is because, you know, uh, Junior, uh, Penny and I will have very different opinions, even as doctors, as to what constitutes a good doctor. And then we've got to ask the community because they're the ones we're serving. But yeah. then you've also got to figure out, okay, that's what the community wants. How do we then um, uh, operationalise that in terms of a form? Well, we could incentivise them, for example, to go into GP training. As for, You know, you might want to... Uh, give them some sort of guarantees about employment or, I don't know, I know there's, there's talk about bonding to go and live in regional Victoria, but, for example. But that's but, different to that's But incentivising them. Mm. Well, look, what, why are the anaesthetists emigrating? Why are they all coming to me day after day, getting their papers signed to go to Canada? Why, can't, why are there no jobs in emergency medicine, yet they're all trained to be emergency physicians? The whole, the thing's out of whack. The, well, the, 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 the need doesn't meet the demand. Absolutely, and a lot of that goes down to selection. And it's not just, it's, it's about getting the right people for the right job. So it's, it's not and just the right about number. The right number. So it's not yeah. just about smarts. It's about, you know, what, what people's drives are and what their personalities will suit them to and what they're suited to as well. And I think that's what, what Junior's talking about. Yeah, and thinking more broadly here, I, I don't think the um, 
um, urbanization phenomenon is unique for doctors. No, Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's the same for a young person, whether you're a radio presenter, whether you're a doctor, or whether you're a chemical engineer. You know, people... Um, like the urban environment. Uh, uh, not all. A lot of them do like the urban environment. And um, while um, I suppose urbanisation and there's such a strong sort of urban culture in Melbourne, we probably can't, you know, make um, you know a lot of the rural and regional centres compete. Yeah, it just means that. that I mean, I just look at things like. Um, uh, uh, kids who don't get into medicine because they have educational drawbacks in living in the regions. They don't always get the best, have the best schools, the best teachers, the best peer group to encourage them to go into the professions, uh, and for example, medicine. And maybe it would be a good thing if the family of the GP in a country area, if one of their kids became a doctor and came back and took over from their parent. You know, that sort of traditional sort of handing on the... Uh, succession planning for, for professionals, doctors and lawyers and dentists, you know, in, 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 in our regional centres. And we don't have it because it all comes back to marks. But there have been um, rurally bonded arra- um, arrangements like that that I think oh, from memory started in the late 90s or With probably yeah. in 2001, thereabouts. Yeah. Um, and, and it has been efficacious in doing that. Yeah, the only problem with rural bonding... Cause they do it for a lot of medical students where they pay for a certain amount of their tuition and the sort of you're supposed to then go back to regional areas. Um, the problem is you can actually pay your way out of a bonding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you give enough money, you don't need mm-hmm. to stick with the rural bonding. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a downside of the of the whole program. Yeah. So how do we? I mean, what do, what do we know? Just I mean, if we, we've only got two minutes left, um, Junior. What do we know about even if it's a very very little amount? about what selects or what selection processes are good for medical students and then subsequently doctors. Okay. So perhaps in summary, um, um, in, in, in the literature, there's probably about um, a dozen or so papers published on this topic in the yeah. Australian setting. The problem is that um, their endpoints have um, been variable and the findings have been heterogeneous and, and very varied. Um, so we, we don't really know a bottom line and um, the studies are so varied so that you can't even do a meta-analysis and make sort of some degree of um, um, predictive um, summary from, from these studies. So we, I suppose we need to sort of um, um, do longer follow-up and actually sort of uh, investigate this more thoroughly. It, it is fascinating, isn't it? Because medicine is so keen on evidence-based, evidence-based, evidence-based. And this is one area, you know, how do we find uh, good doctors... What tools do we use? What characteristics do they have? And yet, there we don't have clear evidence guidelines for this. It's it could could also be the training itself. It could Uh, not not the candidate, absolutely, but the way they're trained. Uh, I mean, to, to what extent do we encourage teamwork? Why are they afraid to ring a consultant in the middle of the night? Still. In 2015, they're loath to ring up when things go wrong. Yeah. Why is that? That's got nothing to do with the candidate. Lots of stuff to talk about. Thank you so much, Junior, for, for, for opening this can of worms on radiotherapy. We're going to have you back to talk about it some more and where the research is going. Thank you so much, Penne Sillen, for telling us about uh, Merv Covey. Very, very interesting stuff. And thank you too, Lex, Judy Carter, for um, providing loads and loads of opinion and some fact. Stay around for the scientists from behind. Stone a go go. They're going to be coming at you in the next five seconds, I reckon. Hi, I'm Patty Smith. Welcome to 3 Triple R. And remember, P 
people have the power. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.